For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt is calling on lawmakers to craft what he is calling a mega-legislation economic incentive package to lure a large manufacturer to Oklahoma. Stitt wants to expand quality jobs to 7.5% to 5% and from 5% and expand the investment tax credit program from 2% to 3%. He says it's to get a Fortune 500 company to Oklahoma. Neva, what company is Stitt talking about here? Well, the, the governor said that he had a non-disclosure agreement, uh, so he couldn't reveal the name, but uh, it, the speculation has certainly been rampant that it is the Japanese electronic uh, electronics company Panasonic. They have been uh, looking for a home for a multi-billion dollar uh, factory that will make electric batteries for uh, make batteries for electric uh, vehicles. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at apparently Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, they want something with proximity to Texas because that's where their uh, partner company Tesla plans on building uh, their big uh, facility to uh, manufacture these vehicles. So, um, you know, we've, we, we're in a real competition here, and it is clearly a mega piece of legislation. Uh, when you talk about uh, Kansas, the legislature there has already uh, approved more than a billion dollar incentive package uh, to try to lure them in um, because Panasonic is expected to invest about four billion in their new facility, whatever state lands the deal, as well as uh, the uh, prospect of 70,000 direct and indirect jobs that will come uh, to the state that that uh, gets this uh, facility. So it's a huge investment. It's a huge deal. Uh, the fast track certainly is uh, on at the legislature, mm-hmm. the House uh, passing uh, bipartisan, 81 to 17, uh, in support, uh, now moving uh, this week, trying to get it out of the Senate, make this deal happen quickly. So there are detractors, as there always are when we start talking about deals like this. But when you look at the overall composition, I think that one of the points that um, the Senate Appropriations Chair, Roger Thompson, said was, look, we need a path to diversify the economy and that they believe that they're putting the parameters and guardrails in place to be able to have a, a piece of legislation and a setup to be able to protect the taxpayers, but also have a huge deal that will be of great benefit to the state of Oklahoma if it happens. Ryan. You know, I don't think that you're going to find anyone in the Oklahoma legislature that would argue that bringing this kind of uh, alleged investment uh, in infrastructure, uh, alleged promise of new jobs to the state of Oklahoma, I don't think you're going to find anybody uh, that's going to be against that. What you're going to find are people that raise serious questions about the process. And I just want to say it kind of at the outset that this process, and, we, and we've seen this now uh, both with the canoe deal, we've seen it now with this, and I think we can just call it the Panasonic deal, uh, you know, the Panasonic deal, um, where you have these government officials engaging in negotiations on behalf of the state of Oklahoma, and they're signing these non-disclosure agreements that prevent them from even having candid conversations with the majority of lawmakers. I know that there are some lawmakers that say that they have signed these non-disclosure agreements and they're privy to the details. But then you have other lawmakers, including, I think I saw that uh, House Floor Leader John Eccles, and you don't get much higher in, in Oklahoma legislative leadership than John Eccles, saying that he hadn't read the non-disclosure agreement 
or hadn't signed it and he wasn't privy to the deals. So, you know, there, there used to be a time when we would attract uh, companies and businesses to the state of Oklahoma by very transparent actions, investing in education, investing in infrastructure, roads and bridges, investing in healthcare services, uh, investing in our, our colleges and universities. You know, and those things we could openly debate. There weren't non-disclosure agreements out there that prevented the facts from coming to, uh, uh, to the floor. And the other thing here, I think, that is, I'm sure that Governor Stitt, and this, this, I mean, if this thing comes about and it happens years from now, we'll all be uh, really excited that the state took advantage of this opportunity. But right now, uh, the governor, in, in terms of timing, the, uh, the issue with canoe, you know, we've talked about that on, on this program before, and, you know, the lack of details around that agreement, and then some of the details that we have seen where they get the tax credits, even before they start manufacturing anything in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and now with the Swadley's barbecue investigation that's happening and the, the boondoggle that that's become and uh, allegations of cronyism. You know, I was reading uh, a story in Nondoc that Trace Savage put out where Brent Swadley in 2018, 2018 said, I wouldn't be here if I played by all the rules and got all the permits and followed all the laws. Um, you know, I think that, and there's now an OSBI investigation into the state potentially being uh, bilked out of millions of dollars uh, in in that deal. So, you know, I think a lot of Oklahomans uh, would be uh, forgiven for having a little bit of pause and saying, wait a second, before we give away hundreds of millions of dollars in the state treasury, uh, we might need to know a little bit more about what you're doing here. Well, and, and let's be fair. I mean, under the proposal, uh, the company, I mean, as it was outlined in the legislation uh, that's moving through the legislature, this company would be required to spend at least $3.6 billion on the project to qualify. And then there are metrics that have been set up that initially they would have to employ, I think it's 500 folks. And then after the fourth year with the graduated metrics, they would have to have 4,000 full-time employees. So they're setting benchmarks, they're setting parameters. The rebate fund would actually sunset in a decade, according to uh, the legislation, meaning that uh, any of the money that would be remaining would revert back to the general fund. So I think what we're seeing is a, a very concerted effort, uh, speaking to your, your point, Ryan, of concerns about let's get this on paper, let's make sure everyone understands what the deal is, but let's also remember that this is intense competition, international players, uh, this is something that uh, is going to move so quickly that it has to be done in a fashion to compete with Kansas or whatever other state may come on the board uh, as they're beginning to move through this process. The non-disclosure agreements and some of that that goes on, that is set by the, by the, by the participants basically at the table. And uh, these outside, uh, uh, outside companies, international Fortune 500 companies, they have to report to boards. They have uh, a lot of a lot of specifics they have to deal with. So we're, we've got lots of moving parts here. The bottom line is, it appears to be a deal that certainly the state of Oklahoma is very interested in trying to attract this industry. It would be unprecedented in terms of its scope, and we'll just have to wait and see in the next few weeks what uh, what transpires. Well, and Colin Walkie said, and I, I don't know if he said this uh, in, in committee or, or where he said it, but I read, he's, you know, you're, I would have a hard time going back to my constituents and explaining that we were giving this much money uh, to a company who's 
name, I can't even say for certain who it is. Um, and, you know, I think that just some basic information like that would go a long ways to you know, giving uh, lawmakers some uh, some sense of, of ease with the deal. I mean, imagine way back on the on the, the Thunder tax credit, uh, if it wasn't even we didn't know that it was the that we were trying to you know take the Seattle Supersonics. Maybe we didn't even know it was a basketball team. You know, if it was just some undescript entertainment uh, sport entity, um, I think a lot of Oklahomans would have scratched their heads. Well, wait a second, we want to know more before we make these commitments. So, I, I don't, I don't have any doubt that this will pass. That the governor will see it on his desk, will sign it in time. Um, because it, you know, the the flip side is that no lawmaker right now seems to really want to be. Uh, you know, on the no side, especially if the no side were to get a majority in this thing, die and then go back to their constituents and explain, uh, you know, why a you know, $300 billion investment is not coming to the state of Oklahoma. So it does put lawmakers in a, in a difficult position uh, whenever they don't have all the details in front of them. Legislative filing ended last Friday with 569 candidates filing to run for political office. It's the lowest number in a gubernatorial election year since 2002 when 574 candidates filed. In the race for governor, Stitt faces opposition from Democrats, independents, libertarians, and his own party. Republicans Mark Sherwood, Joel Kinsel, and Moirick McCabe are hoping to unseat the governor in the primary, while Connie Johnson and Joy Hoffmeister will battle it out in the Democratic primary. The November general election will also include Libertarian Natalie Bruno and Independent candidate Irvin Yen. Neva, are you surprised by the number of opponents against it? Not really. I mean, as you said, Michael, I mean, it's it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of competition in statewide uh, uh, statewide races. And we have a lot of folks file. Some uh, on the front end are perceived as viable. They have a resume. They have the ability to uh, get out there, campaign, raise money, do the things that uh, that help to make all of that happen. But in this instance, I think uh, what to me is still more fascinating is on the Democrat side of this gubernatorial race, where you have uh, former Democratic Senator Connie Johnson, uh, who will be running against uh, former Republican, still state superintendent, uh, Joy Hoffmeister, who is now a Democrat. And I think in that primary where, as we talk about many times on this show, folk, the, the, in, the people that come out in primaries are partisan folks. I mean, Republicans and Democrats who are um, a very different cut of the overall voter pie than the general electorate. So I think when you look at this race, you have to wonder, will active Democrat uh, folks uh, that are looking for someone that has the appeal, that is philosophically aligned with them, Will that will that person be Joy Hoffmeister or will it be uh, Connie Johnson? And you know, a Dem a Republican turned Democrat running for the highest office in the state of Oklahoma, the governor's chair. Uh, that's going to be an interesting that's going to be an interesting de debate if it comes about in the next ten weeks to see where these folks really land on that particular race. Ryan, well, I spoke about timing earlier with regard to the mega legislation that Governor Stitt is pushing to try to recruit uh, an unnamed business to the state of Oklahoma. I think that uh, timing right now, uh, if, if the governor had his druthers, wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't see filing uh, and the campaign kicking off in the midst of the Swadley's barbecue debacle uh, in the, uh, the midst of, you know, some of these questions about the governor's involvement in uh, these 
these efforts to bring uh, business to this business to, to the state without a whole lot of transparency. Um, and then, you know, so I, I do think that we're seeing what that Republican primary is going to shape up. Uh, Joe Kensel made it very clear from the outset that he is going to run a campaign uh, that you know focuses on um, you know the uh, governor's alleged cronyism and uh, corruption and/or incompetence of uh, his appointed officials, the governor's new executive powers uh, to be able to control most of the appointments and the the boards and commissions. And I I really think that if there's somebody that can really be a viable uh, voice to do that, Joel Kinsel certainly will. His his resume makes him a contender in that race, even if it's, um, I'd say, this early on, we've got to say it's a long shot uh, to be able to unseat a Republican governor in a Republican primary. Uh, but then perhaps what happens in that primary may set the stage ultimately moving forward into the general election, especially if either of the other Republican candidates in that primary that don't have the resume or, or apparently the, the resources to be highly competitive could nevertheless pull enough votes and force an, a sitting governor into a runoff. I think that that's unlikely, but it's a scenario now with the number of people that are in. Uh, to Neva's point, you know, and I do think that there will be a lot of Democrats that stick with Connie Johnson as, as a matter of party loyalty. Uh, and I think that, you know, Connie has a, uh, Senator Johnson has a very strong record in the legislature and as a candidate statewide. Uh, everybody knows exactly where Senator Johnson is. Um, and so if, if you want a candidate where you don't have to guess and you want to you want to know exactly where they're at, uh, Senator Johnson makes a very appealing candidate. Uh, but I think Joy Hoffmeister has done as good of a job as anyone can do in making the transition from one party to the other. Um, I think that Superintendent Hoffmeister is going to be incredibly competitive, not the you know, the presumptive front runner to get the Democratic nomination. And, you know, the, the likely head to head between. Uh, Governor Stitt and Joy Hoffmeister this November, um, I, I think we'll see a lot of what that dialogue ultimately looks like uh, as, as these primaries play out. And is Joy Hoffmeister going to be pulled to the left by Connie Johnson? And is uh, Governor Stitt going to be dinged up by somebody like Joel Kensel and independent expenditure groups uh, that have not been happy with the governor's first term? When the dust cleared on candidate filing, 13 Republicans signed up for Senator Jim Inhofe's expired, unexpired seat in the U.S. Senate. This included some of the usual suspects, including Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen and State Senator Nathan Dom, but also some surprises like former Attorney General Scott Pruitt. Meanwhile, only one Democrat filed for the seat, former Congresswoman Kendra Horn. Ryan, with all the Republicans battling to what will likely head to a runoff in August, can Kendra Horn relax and see who her opponent will be in November? If you're a Democrat running for statewide office in Oklahoma in 2022, there is no relaxing. Uh, you have got to campaign 24-7 between now and the end of Election Day. You've got to raise a ton of money. You've got to talk to a lot of voters. You've got to try to position yourself as, uh, as electable. Um, the national landscape for the United States Senate does not look very good for uh, Democrats. I think that uh, most people looking at what's going to happen in November have the Democrats losing uh, the United States Senate. And, you know, I, I suspect that, you know, Congresswoman Horn had a lot of uh, support from the Democratic uh, uh, Congressional Campaign Committee whenever she, especially when she was running for reelection. 
Um, I think it's going to be tough to attract national money to this race whenever there are going to be so many other critical U.S. Senate races around the country. So uh, Congresswoman Horn is going to have to, I believe, raise a lot of the money she needs uh, to be competitive in this race right here in Oklahoma. You know, I will say that the last minute surprise filing by by Scott Pruitt and, uh, you know, I, I say this kind of knowing that the old adage that Gene Stipe told me and probably a thousand other people, I'll be for you or against you, whatever uh, helps you the most. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't know if this hurts Scott Pruitt, but it is it is bizarre. And I've commented to several people that it is bizarre that Scott Pruitt could enter a U.S. Senate race and maybe be seen as the, the most moderate of the front runner candidates. Uh, that's uh, what a wild development that is. And if there were if there were a curveball in filing, I think that that's the biggest one. Neva. Well, I, I think uh, suggesting that Scott Pruitt is a moderate uh, <laughs> in any fashion would be uh, something he would probably uh, certainly bristle at. And I think a lot of folks oh, would laugh at it. Oh, I would. I would. But it's all relative. I'm saying it's relative. <laughs> <laughs> it is relative. And when you have 13 candidates uh, in a field like we talk about, I mean, any anything is certainly possible. But the fascinating look at this race, and we've talked about it a little bit as, as these folks started to enter the field, is, is that you have a number of these folks that have direct ties and kind of resume points uh, with uh, with President Trump. And so that's going to be one of the issues that everyone's going to uh, uh, be fixated on, I think, during the course of the primary. It, it is fascinating. I agree, Ryan. The fact that Scott Pruitt was the last day entry into the U.S. Senate race, someone who you potentially could argue might have the highest profile in terms of name ID, someone uh, not only that has been the attorney general in Oklahoma, but was the former Environmental Protection Agency EPA director appointed by President Trump. So he certainly got uh, he certainly got a lot of connections, uh, D.C. and elsewhere. Um, uh, he is from Tulsa, so always in Republican primaries, we have uh, the mix of uh, the metropolitan areas, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and how that competition shakes out. But you have you, you have T.W. Shannon. He's run before statewide uh, in a U.S. Senate race, a former Speaker of the House. You have Mark Wayne Mullen, who jumped in and immediately tried to kind of seize the mantle of being the Trump candidate with uh, footage and in, in, uh, uh, television spots with uh, the president uh, acknowledging his name at a rally uh, back in uh, 2016, and you have uh, you have other you have other folks too that uh, can't be dismissed. You have the former chief of staff Luke Holland to Senator Inhofe, who has been endorsed by the senator, is in is openly uh, campaigning in commercials, uh, touting uh, touting Luke Holland as his pick, asking voters of uh, Republicans to. Uh, send him uh, to as his replacement um, and then you have you have some other folks that have gotten less attention but certainly uh, have a resume you have Alex Gray who served as chief of staff to the National Security Council during the Trump administration not a household name but someone who does have a resume someone who is out campaigning and showing some uh, 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 fundraising prowess we'll see all of those reports and and kind of begin to uh, kind of filter through that uh, this month but it, there's just a lot to look at in this race and it will be fascinating as everyone scrambles around the state 
targeting 25 plus counties where the where the majority of the votes in the Republican primary will come from and see really, I mean, I think all of them have to have a plan of how do we get to a runoff? Because you're right. I mean, there's really yeah. no viable strategy or scenario right now. It would appear that someone could run the table, even with unlimited money, there is still going to be enough, uh, uh, an, enough differences in these candidates that it's going to be a competition, not only of ideas, but personalities, um, the, the places where they have strength in terms of where they're from or where they have a real uh, base of support. So uh, I think this will be fascinating uh, to watch in the next 10 weeks. The other major federal seat coming up in 2022 is Congressional District 2, as Mark Wayne Mullen is vying for the U.S. Senate. In this race, a Democrat and an independent will face one of 14 Republicans wanting to control the open seat. The GOP contenders include a who's who of current and former state lawmakers like John Bennett, Dustin Roberts, Marty Quinn, Avery Fricks, David Derby and Josh Burkeen. Neva, is there a favorite in this race? Again, I, I I don't know that you could say there could be a favorite when you have this crowded a field. Um, you, it's going to be it's going to be a fast and furious uh, crisscrossing this congressional district that expands from northeast Oklahoma, southeast Oklahoma, uh, and and many many counties. I think it's around thirty counties as I recall. So you've got a lot of you've got a lot of area to cover. And when you look at the mix of all of these candidates, they all have kind of a foothold in a certain part of the district. The question is, very few of them are in the area where the majority of Republicans voting in the primary will come from. So there's going to have to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of wrangling around and I think uh, in the second district historically this is a place where it's also a little more difficult to get a Republican turnout so I think there'll have to be a lot of concentration uh, most of these it would appear that some of these folks are going to either be able to somewhat self-fund their race or be able to raise enough to be competitive I, I thought it was fascinating again that we had in in the congressional race in in the second district we had a late entry on Friday that was a surprise. I had not heard the name speculated at all, and that was Josh Burkeen uh, from Colgate. He's someone that had been a state senator back in 2010, was elected uh, uh, at a time when Republicans were just getting a foothold in, in that part of southeastern Oklahoma and Bryan County in that area. Uh, he's someone who worked for uh, uh, he started out, kind of cut his teeth working for Senator Tom Coburn. Um, so you've got you've got some interesting uh, folks in this race and a lot of variety, a lot of them with ties uh, that uh, that have ties to uh, uh, some of the uh, tribes. And that's going to be an interesting component to this, as the whole conversation about McGirt has been so dominant in much of that area. So uh, again, I mean, I, I, this is one most folks I think are going to have to say, let's, let's look five weeks from now when they've really had time to gin up and see if they can really mount a serious campaign. Let's see what the landscape begins to look like at that point. Ryan. You know, I, I think that Neva's right. It, it will be in, uh, I'm going to be watching to see how this Republican primary field handles answers about McGirt, um, because as members of Congress, uh, they are, you know, we've talked about the, the three different areas where, you know, the three different entities that have to come together to uh, craft solutions to, to issues and challenges and opportunities that uh, came out of the McGirt ruling. 
for the state of Oklahoma, and Congress plays a big role in that. Uh, and so the the uh, the uh, member of Congress from the second district, representing a number of tribal governments um, uh, in Congress, it will I think you know potentially have a big voice in how um, how McGirt is, had the response the congressional response to McGirt. And so uh, at the same time, you have. Uh, your your state's governor, uh, who is the you know by by all intents and purposes the leader of the Republican Party in the state of Oklahoma, who has declared all out war for the most part uh, on tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma almost since he came into office, and so is that Republican electorate primed as a result of the governor's rhetoric uh, to not want cooperation uh, with tribal governments to. Uh, want the stand that would want a member of Congress to go and pass legislation unfavorable to tribal sovereignty and, and compacting rights and uh, you know things like that, or is it going to be a case where these candidates separate themselves from the governor's rhetoric and go out and begin to have conversations with voters about opportunities post McGirt and what they would do in Congress to, to seize on those? One person I do want to mention here is Bulldog Ben Robinson. <laughs> He's uh, a former state senator. Uh, yeah, and he served um, from 1989 to 2004 uh, in the Oklahoma Senate. Uh, he was uh, one of the more colorful members of the Oklahoma legislature, for sure. A, a fierce advocate of, of education, and uh, and I, I I I was surprised to see his name uh, come up as an independent running, meaning that uh, you know he'll be on that general election ballot. Um, and coming from Muskogee. Uh, you know, even though Senator Robinson hasn't been in office for a very long time, he definitely has uh, a lot of folks in that area that know him. Uh, and so does does an independent win a, a seat in Congress? Probably not. Can an independent uh, with high name recognition and some political savvy uh, have you know some influence on what that general election looks like? Perhaps. And especially so if the second congressional district really turns on the critical issue that hits every Oklahoma family. And that is when you walk into a barbecue restaurant and you don't get a cloth napkin and you're, you're sitting there trying to get that barbecue sauce off your face with, with some janky paper napkins, uh, Senator Robinson, uh, during his last term in the legislature, uh, moved legislation. Of course it didn't pass that would have required cloth napkins, uh, at all barbecue establishments in the state of Oklahoma. So, in, in the event that that becomes the, the deciding factor in the second congressional race, uh, this, this independent may make Oklahoma history. Well, and the other thing is that Ben Robinson's also the mm. oldest uh, candidate in this race at 88 mm. years of age. I mean, we really got a field in the, uh, among, uh, among most of the Republicans. I mean, you're in the 30 and 40 year, you know, year old range. I think we have also the youngest uh, um, candidate in the race is uh, State Representative Avery Fritz right now. Mm-hmm. who's 28. So I, I think going back one other point to the to the whole issue of uh, kind of the composition and and the discussion on the Native Native American issues is the fact that you have among the Republicans, you have two citizens of the Cherokee Nation, two Choctaw and one Quapaw. So you've got a real substantial 
uh, number of these of these uh, candidates that have that in their resume and certainly I think are going to make that a strong part of their talking points. So again, it's all about turnout. Well, we, can talk, we can talk all day about resume and how many in the field and everything else at the end of it on June 28th, it's going to be who does the best job of getting the most folks out that will check the box for them. So um, we'll watch with great interest. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.